You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I had picked out a passage of scripture to guide us today uh, in our time in chapel, and then I realized that it said exactly what I would want to say in these very frustrating and painful circumstances we're in that though I had planned to be with you in person, I'm instead here with you recording from my living room by video. And I realized that I was actually in a situation a little bit like Paul when he wrote the letter to the Colossians. Perhaps Paul had been to Colossae, but at the time that he writes this letter, he doesn't know a lot of the Christians he's writing to. He's heard about them secondhand. He wishes he could be there, uh, but he has to write them without seeing them. He has to write them without fully knowing them. And I feel the great frustration of not seeing you, not being with you in person, not having just heard you sing. I assume you're still singing, at least masked and mutedly in chapel, uh, singing the different class hymns and being part of this incredible worship experience, even in these times of coronavirus. And I was feeling so much I was missing out on that. And I realized, well, that's how it felt all over the ancient world when people tried to write people that they couldn't see and they never could get on jet planes and travel. And so instead they wrote things like this. Uh, and, and this just seemed so right that since I heard that I wouldn't be able to be with you in person, I've not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will for your lives, Asbury students at this moment in your lives, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. And this has been my prayer for you as I've gotten ready to share this. And what I want to share comes uh, from sort of the next moment in Paul's letter as he thinks about what he wants these friends he maybe hasn't met to know about themselves and to know about their Lord. It's this incredible passage. It may be in some sense a hymn that would have been sung in the ancient church. Certainly after Paul wrote it down, it it became a hymn that was sung. And I think that it is a clue, not just to what we most deeply believe about Jesus, uh, but actually what can be true of our lives and of what it means for us to live lives worthy of the Lord. So let's look at this together and hear this as the word of God uh, for the Colossians in their time and for us in our time too. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, that is Christ, the beloved son of God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
whenever you're reading scripture, especially an ancient, any ancient text, uh, you look for repetition because they didn't have bold, they didn't have italics, they couldn't make the font bigger, but they could repeat things. And so what's repeated most in this passage from Colossians, of course, it's him, he, this, these pronouns that refer back to the beloved son in whose kingdom we are now members. So this is first of all a passage about our Lord Jesus, uh, but what else is repeated over and over? Well, I guess the, the maybe the second most common thing uh, is this word all, all things, uh, all things, all things. It says that uh, four or five times, I didn't quite count. And then this related word fullness, filling, that somehow the ultimate purpose of God's plan in Christ with us is for Christ to be preeminent over all things, to fill all of the creation and then we have uh, a word that's repeated twice that's especially interesting. It's this word, firstborn. Firstborn. Uh, this is maybe not a word we think about as much these days. Uh, I'm sure you know your birth order. Are you first, second, third, middle child, youngest child? And we often think of it maybe in terms of psychology. Uh, firstborn, I'm a firstborn. We tend to be a little more uptight. Younger kids, uh, younger children tend to be sort of more relaxed. Um, but of course, in the ancient world, this was a very significant word, and it's used two times here. It's used two times, and I think it's significant, the two times it's used. First, it says in Colossians 1.15, that Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, is the firstborn of all creation. So the image of God, that calls to mind the creation of human beings made in God's image, male and female, but before we were made in God's image, there was a singular bearer of the fullness of God in whom and through whom and for whom everything was made. And then there's a more unusual use of the word firstborn. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, referring of course to the resurrection of Jesus, but also referring to his entry into our human life, his entry into the life of suffering in the world and his death on the cross. He's the firstborn of creation, and he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn of life. He's the firstborn of everything that comes new into the world. But he's also the first one to go and taste death, to taste futility, to taste suffering, to taste the full dregs of the worst of the world, and to come back now as Lord, not just of life, but even of death in a way, not just Lord of creation, but Lord of the rescue from death. If there's one orienting thing that uh, we need to let sink into us from Colossians 1, it's this idea that wherever Christ is, we find creation, that is, we find new life, we find new possibility springing up, and there is redemption, that is, entry into what's been broken by sin, what's been lost in the fall, what seemed to have been handed over to the devil, the world, and to evil, that Christ is also Lord of all that. And wherever Jesus shows up in all things, it's going to have this dual pattern of firstborn from creation and firstborn, firstborn from the dead. I don't know that I've ever seen this more amazingly represented than in this window called the Wales window uh, that comes from the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. 
And this uh, depiction of Christ crucified also portrays him as the creator, the risen Lord who holds everything together all the way out, stretching his arms out to the edge of the picture, holding it all up with this incredible kind of power and strength, but also suffering it all on the cross. This is our Lord. He's the model. He's the firstborn. I want us to think a little more about this word, the firstborn. This was, in the ancient world, not just a birth order matter, um, not just a psychological matter, but above all, a word of inheritance. The firstborn was the one who inherited. Now, this is not familiar to us. Uh, we don't generally pass on uh, goods and wealth and families in this way anymore. In the ancient world, it would have been the firstborn son in particular who would have inherited whatever belonged to the family. And what did belong to the family? It was mostly land. And in fact, this is why the firstborn inherited the land, or at least part of why, in, in ancient cultures and traditional cultures and still in many cultures today. In our world, there's a lot of different things you can inherit. You could inherit perhaps some money. Uh, you could inherit perhaps some possessions that belong to your parents one day or to your grandparents. But in the ancient world, most wealth was in the form of land. And if you divide that up evenly among each generation, soon no one has a piece of land big enough to really work. And so instead, the whole land passed down to the, in, in entirety, all of it passed down to the oldest son, the firstborn son. Uh, if you happen to be part of a really wealthy family, you could be like the younger son in Jesus's parable of the prodigal son who says to the father, hey, I want my, my share of the inheritance. But you notice what he gets is money, basically. He doesn't get the land. The land stays with the oldest son, who seems like he was a kind of a pain uh, in certain ways, but stays with the father. He keeps the land. It's his inheritance. The younger son gets the liquid possessions, but the firstborn inherits the essence of what the family is given to tend. So, so when it says Jesus is the firstborn, uh, what does that mean for us? Well, you might think it's unfair that the firstborn child gets it all. What about the rest of us? But the firstborn didn't just inherit the goods. The firstborn also inherited a, a kind of obligation. These, uh, the wealth that the firstborn inherited was inherited for the benefit of the whole family. And so as long as you stayed connected to that firstborn, whether you were a younger son or you were a daughter, you actually would benefit from the firstborn having inherited. And this is the key to the meaning of this for us. Jesus is the firstborn. He's the one through whom it was all made. He's the one who's rescued it all. It all is his, but he holds it for us. And we're heirs with him. We actually get to enjoy all the benefits of it with him if we live in him, if we live a life worthy of him. And this means that our lives actually get to be part of his story. And what is his story? He's the firstborn of creation. He is the one who creates and he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn of redemption. He's the one who redeems. What would it look like if we shared in his inheritance, if we got to live the life that he lives, the life of full creativity and the life of full redemption, we would live creative and redemptive lives. We would live lives that, that fill the world with possibility, that fill the world with new things, 
things that didn't exist before, but that bear witness to the goodness of God and the fruitfulness of the world. And we would live lives that go to a cross and come out the other side, rescued, redeemed, restored, resurrected. To live as fellow heirs with Jesus is to live a life of creation and redemption. We are so tempted to live lives unworthy of this. We're so tempted to live lives that don't look creative and lives that don't look truly, deeply redemptive. What do I mean? Think about your creative life. You have a choice, a chance today to be creative or not. You have a choice to bring something new into the world and into the, uh, the people around you, the context right around you, or to shrink back and not add anything new. You're going to walk out of chapel today and you'll strike up a conversation with someone. And you can either be uncreative in that conversation, that is, you can just keep it safe, you can say things that you both expect the other to say, keep it shallow, or you can actually bring something new to it. You can ask a question you don't know the answer to. You can volunteer something you've been thinking about that you've never told anybody, but that you think might be right or might be possible. You're going to sit down probably today, I hope, and do some schoolwork, homework. You're gonna prepare for a class or study your notes from a class, get ready for a test. And you can either do that in the minimal possible way, the most rote way, the way that you know will just get by, or you can try to bring your fullness to it, your allness to it, and actually discover what you could make of whatever it is you're studying and learning. You're going to go to an athletic practice. <laughs> you can do it either just kind of routinely, just the minimum amount, or you can do it with this allness of creation. Every day, in every kind of scope and dimension of our lives, we either can live a life worthy of the one who speaks new things into being all the time, or we can decide, you know, I think I'll just play it safe. And then what about Jesus, the firstborn from the dead? What does it mean that we follow him even to the dead? Here, I am realizing I'm in a different situation from Paul. Paul was writing people in Colossae. Colossae was one of the centers of the Roman world, a pagan city full of the evidence of the brokenness of the world. It was a place of, of just relentless injustice as every city of the empire was. It was a place of relentless idolatry as every city of pagan Rome was. And the people he was writing to had no choice in a way but to live in the midst of this tremendously challenging environment. And so Paul goes on in this letter to give them instruction about how to live faithfully in a very, very challenging world where they see evidence of the brokenness of the world around them all the time. You are not in Colossae. I am speaking to you knowing where you are. You're in Wilmore. <laughs> Wilmore is awesome. Wilmore is a, a beautiful town, not without brokenness, of course, not without injustice. And yet there is something quite wonderful and protected and important about the protectedness of this place that you are. 
but you are not called to stay in all likelihood in Wilmore. Or if you are called to stay there, you will stay there by entering into the brokenness, even of Wilmore. It may seem like a very protected place, but I think to follow Christ is to follow Christ beyond Wilmore into the places in our world that don't feel as safe, don't feel as free of coronavirus, don't feel as free of all that afflicts the world and our neighbors, and to go with Jesus to those places, those broken places, those places where you risk death, because that's also what Jesus is the firstborn of. That's what he's the firstborn for. So let me tell you about some friends who have done this, friends of mine who have done this who have both lived out the incredible creativity that's our inheritance as those who have been brought into the body of Jesus Christ and who have lived out the entry into brokenness that's the essence of redemption. I think about my friend David Sachs. I first got to know him when uh, I rejected his friend request on Facebook, back when I was on Facebook. And then I discovered he was my neighbor. He actually lived just a couple blocks away. We had mutual friends. And I discovered that this amazing uh, guy was uh, interested in being friends with me, not just on Facebook, but for real. And I discovered that David was a very, very accomplished photographer. He'd lived for years in the city of New York, something like Colossae. He'd moved to Delaware County, Pennsylvania, where I live, a little more like Wilmore, uh, to keep raising his family and to continue his work as a photographer. And David's work was seen all over the world. He did commercial photography, he did fashion photography. One of his uh, images, this amazing image taken in Africa, ended up on the cover of a book chosen for the Oprah's uh, book club. And I would see it in airport bookstores and think, oh, that's uh, a photograph by my friend. He made beautiful things. Photographers at their best capture creation. But David also went to broken places. And there he also made beautiful images. He began to travel at his own expense and on his own time to places where the photographs that are usually taken uh, often don't reflect the dignity of the people who live in those places. And he made these images that showed them in all of their humanity, all their dignity, sometimes incredibly strong and poised, at other times quite bent by the world and yet still bearing the dignity of image bearers of God. And he would come back with these incredible photographs and show the world around him what it really was, a world of the fullness of creation, a world of the fullness of brokenness in which you could see beauty. I think about uh, my friends Max and Brett uh, totally different kinds of callings. Max is a venture capitalist and he stumbled on this, uh, on this company that had figured out something quite amazing, how to actually 3D print a house. They, they've developed this uh, technology that actually goes like a huge 3D printer and gradually extrudes in concrete the walls and inner, inner, uh, inner walls of a home. And the first 3D printed house in the world was printed in a backyard in Austin, Texas. But Max saw this creative potential and he wanted to apply it to a part of the world that was broken. Where is housing broken? Where do people not have the homes they ought to have? And so he partnered with another friend named Brett who runs a housing nonprofit called New Story. And they decided that though the very first house was printed in Austin, 
that the first commercial scale application of this would actually be in, in Central America, in places where people desperately need uh, quality, affordable, reliable housing, and where 3D printing houses, which can be done in as little as a day and can be replicated over and over in a sustainable way, could be a great gift to that community. I think about my friend Jessica. Jessica is a serial entrepreneur. She's started three or four companies now. And then uh, something unexpected happened. Her mother uh, fell ill with cancer and uh, over the course of a year declined and then went to be with the Lord. And Jessica spent that year with her mother going deeper and deeper into suffering, deeper and deeper into the limits of human life and came out and asked, what could I build based on what I learned as I accompanied my mother to the edge of the grave and then put her in the grave? And Jessica has now started this company called Ionicare because she discovered that there were actually very few resources available for people like her who were caring for uh, relatives and friends who were declining or who had chronic illnesses. And she realized what they most needed to hear was, I am not alone as I care for the sick and afflicted in my life. I am not alone, I-A-N-A, Ionicare, I'm not alone. And it's a simple app that allows you to gather a community around a family or a caregiver and help them sustain this incredibly important work of caring for people at the extremity of life. And then uh, if photography and uh, housing and healthcare aren't enough, I think about my friend Thomas, who runs a company called Everclean. And it's just a car wash, <laughs> but it's a good car wash. It's like the kind of car wash you would actually want to take your car to. But that isn't really why Thomas is in it. He's in it for the jobs, not for his job, but for the jobs he can create in a, a sector and an industry that's often thought of as, as kind of a job you don't really want to have, a job you wouldn't really aspire to get. But what if working at a car wash could be one of the best possible jobs you could have that actually working at this job would pay you well from the beginning and eventually allow you to uh, graduate into management, into actually owning your own car wash and being able to create a, a worthwhile, beautiful life as you work in this beautiful place that keeps people's cars clean. And then uh, I wanna tell you finally about this uh, painting that I've been standing in front of for this whole time. It hangs in our living room here. We have a kind of a, an altar of sorts because I think of it as an icon of sorts because it was painted by my friend Mako Fujimura. Mako is an artist. He was one of my mutual friends with my friend David, the photographer. And in 2013, our friend David was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He ended up living for another 13 months. And during those 13 months, as we accompanied him on his own journey towards death and the grave, Mako painted a couple paintings to benefit David and his family. And our family bought one. It's called Luke's Eterna, Light Eternal. It's a beautiful work of creativity. It was painted listening to the requiem for the dead, the prayer for the dead. Let light perpetual, Luke's Eterna, shine on them, O Lord. And out of this journey to brokenness, as we watched our dear friend, father of four kids, 
my neighbor, this amazing creator. We watched him follow Jesus to the grave. Something incredibly beautiful was created that in many ways to me is the most precious thing in my house. And there's this window. It's in the 16th Street Baptist Church where in 1963, a bomb tore through the church, killing four Sunday school children, an act of racial terror. And the people of Wales, the people of Wales, the United Kingdom, were so moved that they commissioned and paid for this window. It's called the Wales window that shows Jesus bearing it all, bearing the worst and also as the one who holds it all together. Christ has come for all things. He is here for the fullness of creation. He has come and embraced the fullness of what is broken. Will we live lives worthy of this? Because he's the firstborn and we inherit his calling to be far more creative than we ever imagined, to be far more broken than we might ever have chosen, and to discover in all that that he truly is the image of the invisible God. And as we live his life in his way, in our beautiful broken world, we can be too. Thank you all so much. God bless you all.